Let us hear from Romans. Uh, when Pastor Paul asked me to preach, I said, sure. He said, it's from Romans. I said, great. And then he said, it's from Romans 2, 12 to 16. It's on God's judgment and the law. And it's like, well, that'll be easy. Um, I think maybe he scheduled this out so that he'd be gone and uh, just leave this for me. Uh, but I was happy to do it regardless. And uh, so let's, let's read together from, from God's word, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the reading of God's word to us. Thanks be to God. No, I don't, I don't think I'm alone in saying secrets are a thing that we don't want revealed. And one of a, a, big, a big fear would be if, and this is a little more lighthearted fear, but a fear would be if you actually met someone who could read your mind. Fearing that person, perhaps if you call it psychic ability, in which they could read your thoughts. And not just your thoughts, but your, you know, the, the things of your past. All those things you've hidden. That's a, it'd be a fear of mine. You sometimes have a conversation with somebody, and a thought might come in your head, and you're like, wow, I'm glad this person can't read my mind right now. Now it obviously then becomes a fun tool to use for movies. Lots of movies like to use this as a superpower. And it's the reading of, of someone's mind that then unlocks their weakness that they've been kept hidden. And then unlocking that weakness means they can be defeated or something like that. If you want to think of Professor X from X-Men or um, that show Firefly, that girl Summer has that ability, whatever it might be. Nevertheless, those things are fantastical. Nevertheless, we do have a fear of being exposed. We do have a fear of our deep, dark secrets being revealed. And I think, you know, on a daily basis, we're not going to really hit some of those, those big life questions on that, but we might experience that on the basis of your common stuff, at jobs, at your work. Perhaps you've made a mistake. Perhaps you've, you've, you've done something wrong. You've made some error. Or maybe even you've intentionally done something dishonest and then covered your tracks. And knowing that if your boss or your coworkers discovered that, there's a lot of fear. Or perhaps it's something more with family. There's a secret, something you've done, something you've said, some relationship you've had in the past, and you want to keep that a secret, and you have a fear, what would my family do if they knew of this? What would my family do if they know? You know would they distance themselves? So the fear of being exposed, being revealed, all these things becoming known that we keep hidden, I think it can drive us to bend the truth. It can drive us to distort what we know is reality, 
to present something alternative because we're, we're, we want to live with this and not the truth. You know, we, in a court of law, the testimony of family or close friends is sometimes viewed with suspicion, rightly so, because there's that fear that they are going to just defend their family member and not seek justice, which is the intent of the court. But fear of exposure goes deeper. I think most of us, and perhaps we don't think about it all the time, I know I don't think about it all the time, but that fear of exposure, I think at least a couple moments in your life, the weight of everything you've done, the weight of, of all those thoughts, those things you've kept secret, at some point hits you. And you have that moment for just a little bit of what if all of this was known? What if all of this was just out there? And I think that fear, those, those things that come that hits us just for a minute is, is an inclination to something true because we know there will be a reckoning at the end. We know that day is coming. We know that day when the final word is pronounced on the basis of everything we've done, where our, our, our worth, our, our significance eternally has been determined based on our thoughts and actions. Of course, we know that to be judgment day. And that's not a day that we generally look to with joy. It's not a day that we look to and, and think great. You know, we see movies, and when they speak of judgment day, they're just thinking of natural disasters and all these things getting blown up. But we know the real judgment day is a lot more horrific than that for so many. So this passage is admittedly a hard one to read when we are faced with hearing those words, judgment, those would be judged. It might make us a little uncomfortable. Nevertheless, God's word has the authority to violate our comfort because it has the authority to invade our thoughts and command our lives. And we must listen to it. And judgment is a major topic in Scripture. It's a thing we sometimes, yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the good stuff. But to talk about the good stuff is inseparable from talking about judgment. Those two things are so connected. The gospel has judgment as a part of the good news. And so we want to look at it. And so this passage. I believe the heart of this passage is an explanation of how God's judgment is just, of how he is fair, how he is impartial, how when he pronounced things, he's not going to show favorites, he's not going to show bias, he's not going to be corruptible. He's not going to be changed by opinions or reasonings like we would. You know, last week, we ended with verse 11. For God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. And this verse here is an, an unpacking. 12 to 16 is an unpacking of that statement. What does that look like? What does that mean? In verse 12 and 16, really drives home this message. We will be judged by everything that is true of us. We will be judged by everything that is true of us, nothing else. But the gospel tells us that we do not need to fear being judged for everything that's true of us because of what Christ has done for us and what he has made true for us. And so I want to look at this passage in three points, which is as the standard 
sermon outline. So, first, we're going to look at God's true judgment. Second, we're going to look at the true issue. And third, our new true self. So God's true judgment. There's no partiality with God. Verse 11, where we left off, 12 and 16 really form the beginning and the end of one big statement, which is a paragraph. And 12 and 16 complete a single thought that, um, that God will be a just judge and he's going to reveal all and judge all based on, on what they've done and said. It's true of them. And verse 13 to 15, those verses are, are, are sort of explanation of that in a, in a deeper way and, and for a specific purpose because he's, he's addressing not just that God judge fairly, but he's addressing it for a reason. Because who, who Paul was talking to were religious people of his day, religious people who felt that they had an objection to God's wrath. They had a way in which they could avoid facing God's wrath. In fact, the bigger topic of Romans here is God's wrath. And there's a number of objections people will throw out to that, why they can escape it, why they're not subject to it, why it doesn't matter for them. And the last one he's, he's addressing here is the one of the Jewish people who said, we have the law. And having the law means that we do not have to face the judgment of God. So Paul is addressing that. He's saying it's not a bloodline that's going to keep you from God's wrath. It's not a knowledge that's going to keep you from God's wrath. Because all will be judged justly. That would be an unjust judgment. So the big idea is, is God judging justly, he judges justly regardless of any qualification, regardless of any quality in us. It's clear. For Verse 12, let's just read it. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's giving two groups. He wants you to understand there's two groups here I'm talking of. Those without the law are those who have no knowledge of the law. People that in the most immediate context, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people who didn't grow up hearing from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which that whole group was God's law presented of what God's will was in, in connection with the whole story. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have God's prescriptions of what it meant codified and clarified in a very specific way of what it means that you must obey God, that you must do what is right and avoid what is wrong. And those under the law then are those who have it, the Jews. They have knowledge. They get it. They have access to God's revealed will for human flourishing. They understand by what the law says because God's law told them what it means to glorify me and what it means to be a benefit to all people, to love them. So to answer it, to answer the Jews who said, our knowledge is what we need, Paul says, knowing the law is useless if you don't actually do it. Knowing the law is useless if you don't do it. In verse 13, he says this, and James uh, echoes this in, in his epistle. It says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Knowledge is no benefit. Religious affiliation is of no use. Membership is of no use. Knowing about these things, being able to articulate them, to repeat them, are not the point. You see, the Jewish people were trying to use this as their privilege, as their heritage. They were trying to bring this forward and say, like, we're the lineage of God's chosen people. 
We're certainly we're the people who's going to avoid any sort of judgment. We're secure. We're ready. We're okay with this. In fact, we kind of like God's judgment day because we have the law, and all those who don't, they're going to be judged. Paul says no. God's only criteria for judgment is not knowledge of him. It is sin. Who has sin in their life? So it says that those without the law perish, and those under the law are judged by the law. We might wonder, this is, I think, an honest question. Wait a minute. Is that fair? Is God fair to judge those who are without his law? It says they're going to perish, but they don't have his law. They don't know anything about it. Why is God judging them? They don't know anything about it. They can plead ignorance, can't they? Isn't that a worthy cause to say, uh, no, I had no idea about any of this? Paul says, no, that is not an excuse. They will be judged, but they're going to be judged differently. And I want to unpack what this is. 14 and 15, I think, help us to understand. It says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Now, by a law unto themselves, it doesn't mean that they create their own law, that they're relativists and just get to create what it is. What it means is that they have formalized the law that is real, and that law is a law that they live by and is not going to be a violated thing. It's not a fabrication, but they are an evidence of the law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their consciences or the conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. With this, you know, okay, so what's being said? Let's divvy it up into two sections, because there's two things Paul's saying here. First, he's saying all people possess an inherent knowledge of God's law, what is known. To them, though, is not fully known in, in the codified of, of Scripture, but it's known to them by that, that intuitive, you're born with it. Certain things are right, certain things are wrong. And now there's not complete agreement throughout the world about what all these things look in particular cases, but there is a morality that you see that transcends all cultures, that transcends all people, all nationalities, all whatever it is, whatever qualification you're going to do. There are some things that we just see as evident in all people. Respecting authority. That every country has an authority that is to be respected. Now, those authorities might not be very respectful, but those exist. There's courts of laws. There's idea of justice. Now, they might commit injustice, but yet there's courts of law that seek to right wrongs. It looks at every country knows what it means to just help people, to want to help, to nurture family, to protect those from harm, to honor marriages, to care for children. If, if, if anything else even just to use our own abilities for the benefit of others, to using the natural inborn God gift of all people, to even to individuals and how they use that as whatever vocation they have to benefit others. Those ways are evidences that they understand God's law exists. And their life by how they live and how we all live, they just show it. If you look at it like this way, our broader culture has a very big understanding of Christianity. Most people, if they say they're Christian, wouldn't probably be a part of a church body, and 
they're still going to live very morally. In fact, we're probably going to notice that some of our neighbors are more moral, more self-sacrificing, more gracious than we are. We might know that. We might have friends and we wonder, are they a Christian based on their acts? And it's like, no, they clearly have no belief. And they might even say, why would I believe that? Yet they live in a certain way. They live in a certain way. So that's the first thing. Second, regardless of our, or regardless of our knowledge, specifically our actions declare that there is a universal law that transcends our cultures. Second, it says that all people possess a natural instinctual knowledge. Then through the conscience and through our thoughts, we either accuse or excuse ourselves. By everybody knows what it means when they've done something wrong. They're either going to feel convicted, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or they're going to feel, no, I'm justified in doing that. Now, those things can mislead us. Consciences can be manipulated because we're fallen, but those exist. No one is born without those things. Now, maybe you're not convinced yet. Maybe you think, okay, well, I don't know about that. You, know, you still haven't convinced me. I want to use some examples. Just look at how, how our society reacts when we have videos released of violence against someone who is in no way being violent back. There's outrage. People are upset. People get upset when they see that someone has been shot when they, for no reason, should have been shot. Or like this. This is a little different situation, but I saw this video this week. There was a, a man in an SUV, and this is recorded by someone else on the road, tied his dog to the back of his car and drove. And he drugged the dog till it died because it couldn't keep up. And he just kept dragging it, just kept dragging it. Eventually, the people just around on the street were just so, they see this and they're horrified. And so they get him to stop. They get in a car, cordons him off, and he stops. And people are so angry, they're ready to violently attack him because of what he did, even though they don't know who he is. They don't know this dog. They don't know him from anybody else. You see, it's because internally we know no living creature should be treated this way. No animal should be treated this way. We know that there's a, a nature in which we should be caring for animals and should not abuse them in that way. There is right and wrong. We are not going to be moral relativists when we see things like this. We're not just going to say, well, that was good for him. So what's the, well, what was the question? To get back to the question of is God just? Is God fair in judging those who don't know his law? Yes, he is. Those without knowledge of his law are not going to be judged by that law. They're not going to be put up against, here's God's law, and did you keep all these things? He's not going to judge him by that in all the particular cases. That's one thing that Paul says here. That even though, it doesn't say that they're innocent, though. It doesn't say, it doesn't go so far to say that, okay, well, they're, with, they're without excuse, they're forgiven. No, it says they're going to be judged by a standard that should be given to those who do not have the law. But what's the bigger point? That might be one of our objections, but what's Paul's point? He's using this not to say God's justified and, and judging those who don't have his law. His point is the opposite, that God is justified in judging even more so those who have the law. His point is the Jews who are trying to escape any religious person, any person who tries to claim some sort of affiliation with God or knowledge of him who's trying to escape judgment, 
those are the ones who face an even harsher judgment because they have so much more that their life is based off of. And God is impartial with his judgment. He looks at it on the basis of sin, and those who have a greater understanding of sin because they have the law have a greater threat, a greater punishment awaiting by knowing what is true, what is wrong, knowing how twisted your heart is, and yet doing nothing. So what's the true issue? The true issue is sin. The question is, then, have you done wrong? Have you sinned? Have you broken God's law? Are you sinful? We all face judgment by the same standard. Knowledge of the law only determines severity. It doesn't get us, you know, our out-of-jail-free card. There's a greater punishment that awaits. To whom much is given, much is required. So what does our sinfulness look like? What are we then known to have as a part of our sinfulness? If all will be exposed, if the secrets of man will be revealed, what will be revealed? You see, our sinfulness is more than action. We know it's in the heart as well. We know sin is not just the things we do, but it's the things we think. We may not do something that we're tempted to do, and temptation isn't a sin. To be tempted isn't a sin, but to give in to it, to even let your brain run with the idea, well, let's consider if I did that, then what would that be like? That is giving in to sin. That is letting your thoughts work with sin. The secrets of man are revealed that the deepest, most intimate thoughts we have, our dark feelings we've buried down, it's the shameful things you've considered doing, it's the the words, the curses you've uttered under your breath that no one's heard because you're angry at somebody, it's the discontent in your heart for your life because you're not happy with what God has given you, it's the constant fear or the anxiety that you don't have what you think you need, and it's questioning if God really cares, these things no one can see in us just by looking us in the eye. Those things will be exposed. Maybe this whole sin idea seems backwards, though. Maybe, maybe we want to say, well, this is outdated. You know, this, is, this isn't sin and that whole idea. Isn't it just really a good way to, for people who feel good about themselves to really just exclude people who they don't like, and then they can just leave them to them the side of the road, and we can keep our life nice and pretty and neat, and we don't need to care about anyone else. Now, that has happened in the church. Maybe some of us in this room have been burned by that. We know what that feels like. But that doesn't make sin false. That doesn't make sin not a reality. If anything, it speaks to a deeper sin that is even more heinous than a moral failure. It's the sin of righteousness. The sin of thinking I'm religious and I'm better. The sin of thinking I have the law, therefore I can, I can look down on everybody else. So if you consider yourself a Christian, you need to be aware that the greatest sin you can commit is one just like the Jews. By looking to your righteousness, by the way you live your life, as the thing you get to show to God, the thing you have that others don't, the thing that you then rest upon and say, this is what I'm going to look to God in. But the gospel tells us you come with nothing and get everything Not you come with a little something to exchange for everything. There's no exchange. You hold nothing in your hands. 
See, this is one of the worst offenses we can do, and especially us who know the truth of the gospel, that we have been forgiven, that everything we have is not achieved by our own effort, but given to us freely. If those without the law are judged in this way to one standard, and those with the law are judged by another standard, then those who have the gospel have the greatest burden to do and to know what God has given them. And to not to live counter to it, to not to fall into that trap of righteousness and holding that before God and saying, look what I've brought you. We can't believe something completely contrary to the gospel itself and then claim the gospel for our own. So if you're not religious or maybe you're not consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're here and you're just figuring things out. I just want to hear what it is again. I'm not so sure. Maybe the idea of sin sounds ridiculous or repulsive. And I get it sounds offensive. We don't like that idea of judgment. None of us do. Christian or not, we are going to feel bad about that. We're just, mm, I don't like that idea. And perhaps you think, you know, I'm not really that bad. Why do we got to talk about this? I'm not so bad. I've seen bad people. There's serial killers. There's terrorists. There's rapists. There's whatever category you're going to give. And most people run to Hitler as being the worst example of humanity. Now, if you, you guys may have seen this, actually. I think Pastor Paul posted this online, a video that R.C. Sproul did. And he took an example. He took three people from, from the, I guess, the congregation. I think he was in the church. And he stood one person on this side. says, that's Jesus. He's perfect. And he stood another guy down there. He said, that's Hitler. All right, let's take a third guy. You're going to come up. All right, where are you? And he walks them over by Jesus. Oh, you're a believer. You're redeemed. And then he walks them all the way back and puts them a step away from Hitler and says, this is where you are with your works. Every good thing you've done, you're so close to him. It's like, are you going to argue, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler, but you're only a, a step away from him. But it's Christ who then has to take you, move you all the way from this side over here. And he's the one who moves you and takes you and gives you your righteousness. That is exactly the picture. You see, it's not, it's not about, well, how bad am I on the, the totem pole, the list of, well, I'm not that bad. It doesn't matter. The whole boat's going in the same direction. And if you're on it, it doesn't matter what layer you're on. There's sin, it's sin. And if you think you're innocent, if you think, well, none of those things are that bad, I want you to consider this. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian apologist and theologian and pastor, he said this. Let's imagine you think you've done everything right and you're okay. Let's do this. Imagine there's a tape recorder around your neck. Maybe you've heard this. I don't know if you have. Imagine there's a tape recorder around your neck. And every time you, and if you don't, if you don't know what a tape recorder is, let's just pretend it's your phone, your cell phone, okay? <laughs> and, and Google or Siri are listening always. And... I've had that twice, by the way, while I'll be preaching, and then Siri starts talking from the audience. Um, anyway, so let's, let's get back to this. Every time you make a statement like this, nobody should ever do this, or I cannot believe someone did this, or anybody who does that, they should be shot or whatever. You know, that probably happens if you're driving. You're most likely to say that. I know that would be for me. If I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off, I'm like, everybody who does that should just be run off the road or some horrible statement that you make that just comes out. 
or I would never do this. And over the time of your life, this, is, this recording of every statement you've made, those have built up and you have a big list at the end. Compare your life to that list. If you think you're innocent, compare your life just to that list, nothing else. No other standard, nobody else. Do you pass the test? Do you pass your own test? I think we all know we wouldn't. In fact, our tests are probably even worse than the one that God would give to us. We'd probably give harsher judgment on things. A punishment that wouldn't fit the crime. You see, but we're not going to be judged on that. We're going to be judged on what is true of us. And so, what is true of you? I think we want to avoid this a lot of times. You know, this show, I started watching, it comes with a big content warning, so I'm not saying run out and go watch it. Um... It's uh, called Bloodlines. It's about, a, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, it's on Netflix. It's about a wealthy family that lives in southern Florida, and they own a resort on the beach. And the family's, it's broken. I mean, it looks good in some ways, but it's broken like every family. What's interesting is the way it's written is it shows all the motivations, the fears, the background story of all these characters, these families, as they interact, and how just messed up it makes all their interactions on a daily basis. And it's also written in a smart way to make you sympathize with this person one episode, and then you just think he's him or her are like the most horrible person in the world in the next one. And it gets you to see that none of these people are great. But the tagline for the show, and I believe this is the opening line, is we are not bad people, I'm referring to the family, but we did a bad thing. I think a lot of times that's something especially religious people want to fall back onto. We're not bad people. We only did a bad thing. But that's impossible. You, right? A tree is known by its fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. We know that. It's when you hear that, it's so simple, it's so obvious, yet we twist the truth. You see, we can't hide behind these standard phrases, these statements. Everyone does it. It's not that bad. To err is human, to, you know, to err, and to, to err is, is human, and to forgive is divine. Or I haven't harmed anyone. Or it didn't mean to do it. It doesn't really matter. All these things, they're just gloss over statements to make ourselves feel good, to soothe our conscience. But you know, the fact that we feel the need to say it actually reveals something very true of us. The fact that we need to say those things, to gloss over something, means that we know there is a justification needed for this. It's not just an event that happened. We need a reason. We need to explain it. And what we end up doing is suppressing the truth in order to avoid the implications of the truth, that there is guilt there, and that guilt must be faced. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this. We reveal our own sinfulness by trying to influence the judge by our own reasonings. When we try and go to the judge and say, no, don't judge me on that, judge me on this. When we give our objections to him and say, use my standard, not your own. When we go to him, we're trying to manipulate God. We are trying to play God to his own judgment. We're trying to take his place on the judgment seat and be our own judge. We're trying to do the same thing we've done since the garden, trying to assume God's place. That myth of autonomy, that we can do whatever we want, determine what we want, and live it out. 
No qualifications are going to last. No qualifications or excuses will stand. We need to stop writing new standards for ourselves. We need to stop granting ourselves a pardon for things that we've done. We are not the ones to do that. But the only way we're going to see that is if we understand what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us we no longer need to give those excuses. We no longer need to go to God and, and say, well, what about this? What about this? I can explain it away. I only did it because of that. We have no reason to do that anymore because the gospel proclaims to us that what is true of you has changed, that the one thing that stands to condemn you, sin, has been removed, that that price has been paid. And it takes us to our last point, our new true self, our new true self. If we are judged by what's true of us, what's true of us has changed. That's what the gospel declares to us, that Jesus, he did this at the cross. He, he took everything that we have, and he gives us hope there. You see, it's at the cross where no excuses need to be brought. It's the only place where we do not need to bring an excuse. It's the cross where our guilt is paid for. It's the cross where the core of who we are has changed. The core of who you are has been radically changed. See, our objections may be rooted in fear. They may be rooted in, in, in being exposed. They may be rooted in that idea that if, if what's known is me to everyone, then I will be rejected. But this reason is removed. You no longer have to live under that. We no longer face God's wrath when we see the cross. We don't go there alone. When we come to the judgment seat, we are not going to hear what have you done to us. We're going to hear what has Christ done. And here's the other amazing thing, as verse 16 points out to us. It says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You see, our Savior is also our judge. The one who's going to judge the whole world according to their works, according to what they've done, is not God the Father, but it is our, our advocate, our mediator, our Savior, our Redeemer. Our judge is our Savior. He sees everything that we have, and we now can give up our tireless efforts to bring our righteousness to Christ. And he even forgives our sins of righteousness. He forgives that sin of holding up something for yourself before God and saying, would you accept this too? You see, we are going to be judged on everything that is true of us, but if everything that is true of us is changed and is what Christ has made in us, we have no reason to fear this day. And we have no reason to bring an objection. We have no reason to fear God. We have no reason to fear exposure. Because what is exposed ultimately of you and this is what the core of the gospel is. When, you, when, is, when everything is exposed of you on the last day, he's going to see the white linen of Christ, of his righteousness. He's going to see the perfect works. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what he proclaims. And the gospel says that reality is true of you now. It's not something just to wait for till then. That reality is true now. And the Christian life becomes the life you live in reality of that truth. This is true of me. Now I get to live that way. 
this is true of me. Now I get to endeavor to fulfill it in the sense of not I am earning my righteousness, but I am given the unlocking, liberating power of the Holy Spirit to live that way, to see what that looks like, to actually taste it on a daily basis, to not live with that fear, to not live with that fear that someone's going to find me out and I'm going to be rejected. That fear is removed. You've been fundamentally changed. And that is why Paul can say it is my gospel, not just the gospel. It is not just out there theoretical. It is real in here, and it needs to be real in each of you. And the only way to let that become a reality is to remind yourself what is true, to repent of your objections, to repent of your doubts, to repent of your attempts at righteousness and accept God's transforming power. What is true of you? What is true of you? That you are cleansed and redeemed, that there is no blot or sin that is why we go to the cross. Let us pray. Amen. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, oh, gracious God, we see we have no fear of your judgment, that even though it's a hard topic, it's a hard topic only because of our unwillingness to accept your forgiveness, only because of our unwillingness to see how great the truth of your gospel is, how invasive it is on us, and how transforming it is. Lord, I praise you that what is true of us is not our works, but your works, the works of your Son. Lord, let us remind, let us ask ourselves, what is true of me? When we doubt, when we give an objection, when we fear something to be revealed, Lord, let us remind ourselves with the question, but what is true of me? And I pray that we would do that in this next week. We need the power of your Spirit to do that, to remind us, to comfort us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.